whatever a society's version of gender is, obviously all males don't fit the masculine paradigm and all females don't fit the feminine one. Who on earth thinks that? No serious scientist ever said genes, hormones, or genitalia alone explain differences in complex behavior. As we saw with aggression, culture is undeniably an important factor, and the same goes for sex. Testosterone, however, changes everything. It changes the way genes are expressed on every chromosome. Proteins from thousands of genes are produced in systematically different patterns and qualities in men compared to women. These proteins go on to affect the body and the brain, first in utero, again shortly after birth, and then there's another explosion of changes in puberty. Testosterone affects body and behavior, which in turn affects one's social environment, which in turn affects body and behavior, and so on and so on until death. Testosterone divides. So that is a quote from the book T, The Story of Testosterone, the hormone that dominates and divides us. Written by my guest today, uh, Dr. Carol Hooven, who is a PhD and is a lecturer and co-director of undergraduate studies in the Department of Human Evolutionary Bi Biology at Harvard University. She earned her PhD at Harvard studying sex differences and testosterone and has taught there ever since. She has received numerous teaching awards and her popular hormones and behavior class was named one of Harvard's Crimson's top 10 tried and true. So the book and the conversation, obviously you can tell it's going to be all about testosterone. Um, the book and the, in the conversation in this podcast really uses a lot of personal stories and the latest research on testosterone. And Carol uh, is able to show how testosterone drives the behavior of the sexes apart and drives differentiation between men and women. And there's some really interesting conversations in here. Uh, Carol was fortunate enough to interview a number of uh, people that transitioned from male to female and a number of transgender folks. So we talk about their experience um, using testosterone and then reducing or blocking testosterone. We talk about the impacts biologically that testosterone has in the body of men and how it is different for women. Uh, we talk about some of the behavioral and genetic differences that have come out of that, what the research is showing. And she takes a very sort of pragmatic and uh, central approach to this while sort of sticking to the science um, this book has been very well reviewed. The research has been incredibly uh, well reviewed and documented in the book, and it is one of the singular most comprehensive resources that I've seen on, on, on testosterone. Uh, and it's an honor to have her here. She was recently on the Joe Rogan podcast, uh, which got a lot of attention. And so it's uh, a pleasure to be able to interview Carol Hooven today. So I hope that you enjoy this episode. If you want to watch it, you can head on over on YouTube and actually watch our conversation live. Uh, otherwise, don't forget to share this episode as I'm sure that there are people in your life that would enjoy this as it gives a lot of understanding, especially to what men go through within puberty, what we experience through life, uh, things like andropause, where our testosterone starts to peak and then decline. There are marked behavioral differences that come along with that. So this is just a, a radical and awesome podcast for anyone that is wanting to better understand themselves as a man or for the, the individuals or people that are looking to understand men uh, in general much better. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review. Don't forget to share. And without any further delay, please welcome Dr. Carol Hooven. 
Thank you so much for having me, Connor. We've already spent a few minutes getting to sort of like kick things off. And we were deep in conversation before <laughs> I even hit record. And I was like, oh, wait, I need to hit record. We need to get some of this on, bring this into the conversation so people yeah. can hear it. But I'm going to start things off. Obviously, we're going to talk a lot about testosterone. We're going to talk about biological differences between the sexes. I think we're going to talk about how testosterone impacts our development as males and some of those some of those pieces, which I think is going to be phenomenal. But let's start with you. Let's start with defining moment, a story about a defining moment that made you who you are today. That's a big question. And I have to think a little bit about that. I can talk about this. There's one sort of easy answer because it's something I talk about in the book. So in the book, I talk about my sort of trajectory and how I got to Harvard. And I should just say for your audience, I didn't start out as someone. Can I swear? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just did not have my shit together in high school. I was not by a long shot, a straight A student or anything like that. I never would have gotten into Harvard as an undergrad. It took me a while after college, in fact, to work on myself and figure out what I wanted and grow up. And so I took about 10 years after grad school, sorry, after undergrad to apply to the Harvard grad program. And I didn't get in the first time because uh, I didn't really have any relevant experience. I went out to Uganda and studied chimps and that's a whole nother story. But after doing that, I came to Harvard and I was just thrilled to be there and did feel like an imposter. So you hear a lot about imposter syndrome. Supposedly women have that more than men. You know, I feel like I'm the mistake. They're going to discover that I don't belong here. They don't have the you know, cognitive capacity to keep up with everybody or whatever. But it turns out everybody kind of feels, feels like that. So I was in a seminar that I had to take as a grad student and it was on the evolution of human sexual behavior. So we're trying to understand patterns in human sexual behavior by looking at different animals to see what their sexual behavior is like, how it might be adaptive, and then how we can use that perspective to explain human sexual behavior. So we were looking at sexual assault, rape specifically. There were probably eight grad students in the class. There was a male professor. And we were reading a paper on the evolution of rape. And the model species was the scorpion fly. The scorpion fly, it was that rape was actually in the title of the paper. And it described how the scorpion fly has a special appendage that he uses to pin down the female. And he will do this when he can't acquire the resources, the food resources necessary to attract a mate. Instead, he'll just take what he wants from her. So the hypothesis that the author was defending in the paper was that there's something sort of similar among humans. So the idea that rape might be an adaptation in humans is obviously controversial. And I was encountering it for the first time. And I was supposed to be contributing to the discussion. It was my turn to talk. You've already seen me cry once, right? So you, you know I'm emotional, right? And not okay, only I have, I... I have that effect on people most times. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so um, I, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, not only do I get teary-eyed when usually when exposed to other people's suffering in some way, I also can get angry. And it was my turn to talk. And I was angry. And I think it was coming from hurt. It was coming from I have our, I've been a victim of sexual assault and I'm reading this paper that says that men adapted to rape like the scorpion fly and I was pissed. So 
instead of, you know, calmly and just passionately reviewing the paper and the evidence, I said, this guy is an asshole. And I was like, my eyes were wet and I was almost shaking and I felt small. I remember, and I, I always mm. hear up when I talk about it, that feeling of feeling small. And I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do as a scientist. I was getting very emotional and I rejected the hypothesis because I was hurt. I found it offensive. So I would say one of the most pivotal moments that I've ever had as a scientist was that moment and the male professor not coddling me, not treating me like a woman who couldn't handle the science. I was a scientist. I was in graduate school. He just kept coming back to me. And instead of, he's, he was British, <laughs> might have something to do with it. But so instead of kind of addressing my emotional discomfort, he expected me to be a scientist. And he kept saying, look at the evidence, look at the evidence. And I finally did. And as I say in the book, it was not easy. It was very difficult for me. But I learned in that moment that I could do that. I could be a scientist. I could evaluate the evidence despite what my gut told me to do, which was to call mm -hmm. this guy an asshole and reject the hypothesis. And tell this story to my students because so many people, I think especially now, are almost rewarded and encouraged to respond to hypotheses and we'll say science or what we, you know, we're confused about facts nowadays. And part of the reason is that we're sort of allowed to take our feelings as evidence for how the world works. It's not, mm. that's not how science works. You'll never get to the truth if that's how you operate. So for me, that really was one of the most formative moments, I would say, as a scientist who now feels empowered to understand men and what happened to me in my relationships with men, positive and negative, because I'm able to put my emotions, which are vast and deep, you know, and that's maybe why I'm interested in evolutionary biology, because it gives me tools to make sense of what I'm feeling and to try to understand the world using logic and rationality. Well, I mean, very, very well said. And I appreciate the story. And I just want to say you're actually quite a good storyteller. That was, that was, it was wonderful. I've, I mean, I've, I've interviewed like 300 plus people. So I have, I have somewhat of a litmus right. test, but I think it's, I think what you're saying is very important because sometimes we can draw false equivalencies between data that we see and excusing behavior. And that seems to be part of the challenge that people have today is that when we start to look at data and scientific evidence, and view things through the lens of, okay, these things happen and here's why they might happen. Sometimes it gets construed as, as excusing behavior or being the reason for things, yes. et cetera. And so, exactly. um, so and I I really, that's why people fear biological explanations for especially male behavior for that. Yeah. That's one of the big reasons right there. So what led to the, I actually have it right here. I was fortunate enough to get one beforehand, but what led to the, the creation of this book? Like what spurred it on and, and why do you feel like this book is, is so relevant and needed and important right now? So I'm going to answer that from a personal point of view and an intellectual sort of professional point of view. In my department, I'm a lecturer in the department. I'm a human evolutionary biology at Harvard and I have a permanent position, but I don't have a research lab and I'm not tenure track. So it's different position from mostly the men in my department who are very big shots in their field, have tenure, you know, are famous. I was, I'm really into teaching. That's my thing. And I'm obsessed with endocrinology, with hormones and, and behavior and evolution. And I, I just have a, you know, really strong intellectual enthusiasm for that area. And it's, you know, I just told you how it's changed my life personally. So 
I was seeing that my colleagues around me were publishing books, you know, and that was just sort of taken for granted. They, it elevated their status. They made a lot of money. There's a whole racket. You know, if you're at Harvard or an Ivy League institution, you have a platform there and you can, you'll, you know, tend to do better on average with your books and you, you want to get your word and your work out there. It's not something that I had ever considered. It just never even crossed my mind that that was something that I, maybe I could do too. And it was one of those dominant males in my department. It was two of them, actually, Richard Rangham and, and Dan Lieberman, uh, who pressured me to do it. They said, you're a great writer. You have a great course. You know, every, you know, you know a lot about this field. This is something that people are interested in. So I was like, maybe it would be something I can do. So I sort of considered it, but it, and that took, so there was a few years between when that kind of started percolating. And what happened in those intervening years is people started, I'm just going to have to say it, encroaching on my territory. And I didn't like mm. that. And I also saw people being bullied for having the wrong opinions. And I don't really, really don't like a bully. I don't like people trying to be bullied out of their opinions. That One of my strongest values is that the way to achieve social justice in whatever area it is you're concerned with is to have open dialogue, allow people to speak freely, challenge people's views and their ideas and their arguments, not them personally, right? And that's just extremely important to me. And I found that in my field, the situation was just getting worse and worse. And that is the situation for me of this beautiful, these beautiful, powerful tools we have to understand human behavior, which are Bio, evolutionary biology for me, I think it's, you know, where it's at, especially hormones. If you're interested in mm. sex differences in behavior, you're interested in hormones. And people were starting to write books and publish articles more and more that were being rewarded and embraced in journalism and just socially in generally trying that try to argue that hormones and evolution is just really not that important in shaping behavior, particularly sex differences What's really important is the patriarchy and culture, and that's where we have to focus our efforts. And I feel like I've got to defend what I do. I have to defend this perspective and the power of this perspective and this information. I have to defend the integrity of the scientific method and the power of that method. There's, and, mm -hmm. I, and I want to, I really wanted to show the mistakes that people are making who favor you know, just consistently play cultural explanations and downplay biological ones. They work together. You know, that always mm. genes and environment for every animal produce behavior. And we know that every evolutionary biologist knows that. And so we want to understand how that interaction works in humans. And it's fascinating and powerful. So that is why ultimately I ended up writing this book. And I feel, yeah, I'm obviously really passionate about the topic. Yeah, no, thank you. You know, I think I said this before, but I, before we jumped on, which is, you know, I, I appreciate that you put this out there because I think in a, in the current culture, as you're saying, it is kind of going against the more sort of like woke um, narrative that, that wants to downplay or completely eradicate biological differences between men yeah. and women and really heavily focus in on the sort of social and, and cultural aspects of gender. And, you know, my wife and I are having this conversation because very much like, you know, I know what it's like to be a boy who goes through puberty and having boners on the bus and uncontrollable urges and thoughts and aggression just pouring through me. 
And, you know, it's like, it's like that isn't, doesn't feel just socialized, you know, someone was encouraged, like, like, right. The culture has been encouraging you to behave that way since you were a little kid. It just feels like it's coming really from a deep place inside of you. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's interesting to go into the science and the biology behind it. So I think where I, where I kind of want to start is we could, you know, we could get into this and in a very rich manner. But I think in the book, you talk about how testosterone pushes psychology and behavior of the sexes apart. And so I I just wanted to start there in sort of a macro broad level and hand the torch over to you to say, you know, what were some of your findings and what are some of the indicators that that testosterone does push psychology and behavior apart between men and women? Yeah, that's a big question. There are a lot of different ways to answer it. And this is why I love evolutionary biology, because we are apes, we're mammals, and we're bizarre example, obviously, a mammal because of our culture. You know, we still don't understand exactly how we got here, but there's a lot of great work doing going on the evolution of human culture. But we sort of think that we're totally, some people think we're totally different and really looking at non-human animals is just not relevant. But that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. We are shaped by eons of evolution and, and in this case, particularly sexual selection in the same way that other animals are. So in the book, I talk about this incredible fantasy trip that I took to the island of Rum off the coast of Scotland. And I went there because there's this research site that I've been teaching about for years on red deer. So what's cool about red deer is that you can really see clearly the effects of testosterone. So in humans, we're not seasonal mate, we're not seasonal breeders. You go through a male puberty and that's that. You're jacked up for almost forever. You know, you're going to obviously have andropause and your testosterone is going to go down, but you're not going through these cycles like we are, right? So women do have cyclical hormonal and behavioral and physical changes that everyone else can see to some extent. So you know that we're affected by our hormones. We, it's harder to notice in you guys because it's sort of permanent after sexual maturity, but most Many species are seasonal breeders, so you can see the effects really clearly. So in red deer, when the males are out of breeding season, and this is typical on many, most seasonal breeders, the testes regress, the sperm is not made, testosterone levels plummet, the weaponry falls off. So the big, (laughs) huge antlers fall off because they're testosterone mediated. They're the weapons for male-male competition. They fall off and the males hang out together peacefully in bachelor herds, (laughs) right? Outside of breeding season. Why? Because the females aren't fertile. There's nothing to fight over, right? Hmm. So the males, testosterone isn't needed. Nobody's going to get pregnant. So the testosterone levels fall. Everything's basically peaceful. Nobody has weapons on their head. Then when when breeding season comes around in the fall, and this is what I went to see, and it was the most spectacular, one of the most spectacular trips of my lifetime, and I highly recommend it. The females come into estrus, male testosterone starts going up, sperm gets made. So you have to remember that testosterone is a reproductive hormone. So all that, all those behaviors, it might look like senseless male aggression, but it's about sex. It's about mating opportunities. So 
the increased libido, increased aggression, increased weaponry, increased body size, increased muscle. We see all that same stuff in humans, obviously not the antlers, but it's happening during adolescence. But in red deer, it's happening seasonally and you can just see these changes. So I got to see the males come out and get into fights with their antlers for they acquire a harem of females that they can then breed with. And they're defending their territory. They're defending their females. And other lower ranking males try to sneak in and they call them sneaky fuckers because <laughs> they haven't achieved the status through male-male direct competition. They use other strategies to steal somebody. Some, you know, It's not like they own the females, of course, but they're trying to steal what another male has like barely acquired, really. Yeah. So- I'm telling this story partly because it illustrates what testosterone does is it coordinates sperm availability, right? It develops male reproductive physiology. So sperm manufacturing and all the reproductive anatomy and enables males physically to be able to impregnate a female by coordinating sperm availability with the psychological changes in the brain, it's a steroid. It can get right in, it can pass through cell membranes and get right into the brain, alter neural structures in the prenatal period and in puberty to motivate males to do whatever it takes to gain status and gain access to mates. That is what sexual selection does. That's how it works. So it coordinates all these traits in a way that's very similar to how it works in humans. So it does something similar in humans, but it's about, it's different, of course, because we're in a different environment and we're one of the 5% of mammals in which males provide some paternal care. So the intensity of aggression tends to be lower in humans because of paternal care, partly, and we can talk about that later. But so males are capable of intense nurturing in humans, but also benefit more than females from increasing their access to mates and having a higher libido and a greater preference for sexual variety. And that is testosterone doing all that stuff, the muscle mass, the body size, the sperm, the beard, and these psychological differences that are have to do with status competition and acquisition of mates. So- yeah. Right, that was a yeah. No. Thank, thank you. For, no. Thank you for that. I mean, it's such a good example. It's I the when you were talking about the deer and like the sneaky fuckers, I couldn't help but think cuttlefish. I call it the cuttlefish effect, where like you know the they'll sort of sneak in under the yes. underneath the underneath the radar. But yeah. heard the the terminology that testosterone drives sex seeking behavior, the seeking of sex and estrogen promotes the receptivity of sex, and and it's interesting because. It, Dr. Andrew Huberman, I think, has done a few sort of conversations on on this and gotten into some of the research that's out there. And I was curious to get your your take on this idea that testosterone drives the seeking of sex. It almost sounds like that's what you're describing there, which has has somewhat like I've read some studies that show that, for example, testosterone is increased during sex and that semen retention can increase testosterone. I'm curious to get your thoughts on that kind of okay, stuff. Okay, sorry, you saw, you saw my expressions. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not really the case that testosterone is increased during sex. And the 
main function of testosterone is to condition the animal to do whatever works in a given environment to increase access to mates as long as it's not at the expense. So in humans, it can't be at the expense of your primary pair bond and your offspring. So you have a little baby right now. You were to go out looking for mates, you have a higher chance of, I hate to say this, but something very bad happening to your offspring, right? And that Mm. is the case, like in birds, where in order for, in many species, for the chicks to survive, the male absolutely, if you've ever seen birds of two birds working together at the nest, it's amazing. The, The male is working his butt off and so is the female. He's just out providing, he's working so hard. We, I love birds and I watch them all the time. And we have a wren couple right now and there he's out coming back, back and forth. I'm like, where did you get that worm again? Where did you get that, you know, grasshopper or whatever? It's amazing. It's just back and forth, back and forth. And if he were to, if you increase his testosterone during that time, his kids will die. So it's not, even when your test, which your testosterone is probably a little bit depressed right now because you're interacting with your offspring, that mm-hmm. stimulus changes you. You're nurturing now. You love the crap out of that kid, right? You're not thinking, I mean, maybe a little bit here and there, but generally you're not focused on attaining additional mates, right? And when you're in a pair bond that's working, if you can maintain that pair bond, basically guard your mate on some level from straying or from uh, their males, and that's a touchy subject, your reproductive success, the number of kids that you could have could be just as high, if not higher, than if you're out competing on the open market for mates. You know, you really, that's a high risk strategy. So it's not always the case that testosterone increases the desire for sex. If you as a man, if your testosterone level were to go down to the to a female level, yeah, your libido is going to plummet. So in that sense, it does increase the desire for sex, but it's not this kind of wanton desire. But it, you know, like in transgender people, if you go from female to male and they, a woman, a sorry, female, natal female or female bodied person takes male typical levels of testosterone, his mind will be blown by the change in libido. And like you described, it's, it's like a male puberty where you're just overwhelmed with thoughts of sex, but that tends to mellow out somewhat over time. But, and then in terms of testosterone being associated with the sex act itself, it's really more associated. So in many animals, you can see like in the red deer, there's aggression directly followed by sex. Sex and aggression in the animal kingdom are like, boom, boom, boom. You have to beat another male to have sex with a female who's right there right now right? So you have to be able to do both. And testosterone does condition animals to respond to other males aggressively and females in a sexual way, and also sometimes aggressively to keep them sexually available. So it's really more about the status competition. And so testosterone does respond to threat. So in some men, it tends to go down in the face of threat, because these are men who basically have a track record of losing, and it's adaptive for them to respond to a threat with fear and anxiety. So reduced testosterone will tend to promote that fear and anxiety in the face of threat. And if testosterone goes up in the face of threat, if you're like, get out of my face, you fucking asshole, then you're somebody whose testosterone might be going up 
And if you win that interaction, whatever way you measure that, you might have a further testosterone increase, which facilitates a dopamine increase, which rewards you for that Mm. aggression. That's why aggression can just feel amazing when you either physically or you argue someone or you stare them down or whatever way it, you know, plays out. Sorry, that was yeah, interesting. No, no, no. It's beautiful. So it's, it's wonderful. It's, I mean, you're getting into some really good stuff there because I think just to backtrack, I had read, I can't remember where, but somewhere that when a man has a child, he'll go through a period of reduced testosterone. If he's and, interacting. So if he's yeah. really, there's different societies in East Africa where some men in basically hunter-gatherer societies where some men closely have a bond with their kid, little kids and Mm -hmm. other places where they don't. And if you don't really uh, provide much direct care for your offspring, you do not have that testosterone suppression. Yeah, I've took eight weeks off when my son was born so I could spend some time with him. So I definitely bonded. And but I I definitely found myself like actively working to keep my my energy and reward system up and, you know, working out five, six days a week and and really being diligent about that. Cause I read this and I know a lot of guys that do bond with their children when they're born and they have this compression where they start to really feel lethargic and low motivation and a lot of the stuff that you're describing. And so it's interesting to see how that plays in. And I also hear you talking about how I'm going to maybe reword it, but yeah. how competition in some ways can can have the byproduct of increasing testosterone right. and dopamine dopamine release, which is wildly fascinating, but also also makes a ton of sense. And um, that's what happens around sex. So it's not that testosterone goes, you just have to mm-hmm. have male levels of testosterone and it only has to have been in your system to have shaped your neural circuitry in ways that in adulthood are temporary because testosterone can regulate gene transcription and change the kinds of connections that neurons are making. And having that high testosterone does condition a dopamine response in certain sexual circumstances. So even if you remove the testosterone, as long as you have that dopamine response, which will fade after you don't have testosterone for like a week or two, it depends in humans, it will take some time to fade. So that, but if you're, so it's really, it's not that testosterone goes, that dopamine goes up and it's testosterone that act the long-term actions of testosterone that have conditioned the short-term reward properties, say, of dopamine availability and and transmission in the appropriate, in response to the appropriate sexual stimuli. It happens in non-humans and it happens in humans. So people, the thing with testosterone is it's, it does primarily regulate gene transcription and those are long-term effects. So it doesn't necessarily have a lot of rapid action that we know of. It's possible that it does. There's something called non-genomic action, but really it's about shaping longer-term responses. And when you say, when you say gene transcription, can you give a little bit more context for, for those of us who might not have a (laughs) verbiage for that? Sure. So testosterone is a steroid. Some hormones are, most hormones are proteins, like insulin is a protein. And proteins can have very fast actions inside cells, like insulin will open up a little channel for glucose to be able to come into the cell to be used by the cell, say, to fuel muscle, right? To fuel working muscle. And that's a rapid action. And 
That's the protein working at the cell surface. So steroids do not, steroids go right into the cell because they're lipophilic and they can get into the cell and they can get into the cell's nucleus. So we all have ways of controlling in any tissue, in any cell, the, all of our DNA is in every cell and only some genes in the DNA in every cell are expressed, right? So in bone, you're going to have certain types of genes expressed and certain proteins produced at higher rates than others, right? And like you have a beard. So that is a derivative of testosterone getting into the cells in your hair follicles and causing certain genes to be produced, sorry, certain proteins to be produced from certain genes to cause your hair to grow. So the reason that you have a beard and I don't isn't because we have different genes. It's because you have testosterone that is regulating the transcription of the genes in your hair follicles that are producing hair, right? So all of our differences really are because changes, differences in the uh, proteins that are produced from the genes that we share. We share almost all of our genes. It's just a very small proportion of genes on the Y chromosome, like 70 genes, right? Of course, there's you have one X and I have two, and that's a whole other thing. But it's really the fact that I have estrogen that gives me the you know traits, the secondary sex characteristics that are different from yours. That's because estrogen is a steroid and it causes caused me to develop mammary glands, right? And more fat, you know, I have like probably twice as much fat as you do. It varies, of course, but on average, and that's because of estrogen is taking the energy that I take into my body and turning it into fat on, you know, more fat than muscle, because that's what helps me reproduce because estrogen is a reproductive hormone and reproductive hormones control how our energy is spent to help us reproduce. Your food, your calories are more likely to be converted into muscle because that's what helps you reproduce. And testosterone basically controls that process. I don't know. Again, I don't remember what you asked me. I'm talking about. No, no, no. You, you, you nailed it. You got okay. it. I mean, that's it's, it's so, so good. So good. Okay. So I have, I just want, I want to keep rocking here because there's so many questions that I, that I wanted to ask. One of the interesting things that I found about the book was that you, you made it a point to interview and, and connect with transgender folks who were transitioning from female to male or male to female. I think one that went from female to male and then back again. That's right. I was wondering, yeah, I was wondering if you could just elaborate a little bit more, like what was your intention with connecting with transgender people and, and what did you start to sort of research and acknowledge as you went through that experience in terms of how, you know, injecting hormones, injecting testosterone into the body or, or removing it actually yeah. impact, impacted them, their behavior, et cetera. Yeah. So the point of the book is to really understand what testosterone does for us. What are its effects in humans and how can we explain them? What is the evidence? So one way we can understand that is by looking at non-human animals because we can also do experiments on non-human animals and we learn a lot from those experiments. We can't experiment on humans. We can look at people who have differences of sexual development, say girls who have high levels of testosterone in utero or men who have very low levels for some reason. But then we have this whole rich literature, which is transgender people who have decided to, as part of their transition, alter their sex hormone levels to match those of the opposite sex. So there's just a 
huge like wealth of information there that is fascinating. And I, I should, one thing to remember, if you're talking about a natal female who transitions and it becomes a trans man, right? There's a, when we're all developing in the womb, male fetuses in humans have, and many animals have much higher testosterone levels than female fetuses. And that testosterone conditions their, or shapes their neural development in ways that support reproductive behaviors and physiology. So that's where that, those psychological changes begin that support sexually differentiated behaviors. So when you're talking about transgender people, you are changing the adult levels that were the hormones and what we call activational effects of hormones, but you haven't changed the organizational effects. So there are differences, likely to be differences in the brains of adult males and females. So the change in testosterone in transgender people is kind of working on brain that was shaped to support some behaviors of the opposite sex. That's getting a little confusing. That's so good. But so that's just sort of something to keep in mind. So I really wanted to understand, we have these people who are kind of crossing the testosterone line. Like if I were to, which I would just love, of course, to do this, I would love to take male levels of testosterone and live for, I don't know how long I could do it, but I think that would give me that I'm just dying for that insight. I want to get in there, right? You know, I really want to know what it's like. But these people do, in some sense, know what it's like. Even though they may have developed as the opposite sex, they still have a lot of information. And so I wanted to, so I got into the scientific literature that reports on what these changes are like physically and psychologically. And I interviewed a few transgender people, including a non-binary 12-year-old who was taking puberty blockers. And the main point is, it is what you would expect. So if there's a female to male transgender person, what's your number one thing that you think would change? I mean, if, if, they're, if they're taking testosterone, I would, I would imagine that their sex drive and aggression... I had to open two, a window because like, I know you were going to talk about sex. All right. Yeah, yeah. Um, sex, sex, and or, sex, or, sex and or aggression. Yeah. So I, it's interesting. Sex is the big thing, right? So... That's the number one thing that changes very, you know, pretty reliably that sex drive goes way up and it can be, it's not for everybody. There's, you know, again, a lot of variability, but a lot of people report it being overwhelming. It's what they wanted because they, they want to live as a man. And, and that means having the psychology, not just the body. So the psychological change happened before the physical changes happen which is interesting. So of course you will get facial hair. The voice will drop to some degree. You get a little bit of male pattern baldness. And these are changes, again, that say trans men are looking for. But the or the experience of orgasm changes and the sex drive changes. And people have described, and this is what I think is really interesting, what I try, have tried to understand about male sexual psychology because I, I don't relate to it, is the feeling other people as sexual, I sort of hate to say this, but as sexual objects. And I don't even mean it in a negative way. It's, it can be very hurtful, of course, to women. But I think this is somewhat, it seems like it's somewhat of a natural part of male sexual psychology that a lot of men themselves don't really like and have to resist 
And yeah, but I but I think it's important to be truthful and honest about it. You know, I think if you I ask most most men, you know, they're going to talk about having experienced either a period in their life right. or a long time in their life viewing sex and and you know the people that they desire as objects in some capacity. Yes. And they probably move past that. And one it, would and hope, it, but know, many trans- don't. You know, many yeah. don't. And I think it would be helpful to understand what that is like, what that feels like. Mm. And because I don't think it means that men are bad. It's bad if they act on those feelings in a way that's harmful or hurtful to the target of their right. sexual desire, of course. But the desire itself is not shameful. And I do think that it should be something that we can acknowledge is a difference, right? And to mm-hmm. understand it and accept it and try to figure out, okay, how do we as a society like acknowledge that there's this difference? Women need to understand. Men get it and they don't talk to us about it. They're not like, yeah, of course we view you as dicks. I mean, maybe some do. And it's not all women. It's not all, obviously, all environments, but there that is something that does seem to be a product of testosterone. I heard that feeling described. And it's not something that, especially if you were raised as a female, that you're comfortable with because you know how it is to be on the receiving end of it. But then you take the Mm. testosterone. You're like, holy shit, I get it. (laughs) And that's profound. So that was one really profound insight. I thought the other thing, it seems, it seems like that one's moving to you. Is that it is because I, it's upsetting that men are shamed for that and feel misunderstood. And that even men feel there's all this guilt and there's shaming. And if it's something that's happening naturally, And it's a very strong urge and it can be confusing and overwhelming and make you feel shamed and that women Mm -hmm. angry. And I can sort of get now how men feel like, God, I don't know how to talk to women. I don't know how to behave because they want their bodies in one sense. They want to get this thing that their body is telling them to get. And it's not that they don't like the woman. It's that they're like overwhelmed with this certain attraction and they don't know how to navigate that. And I feel like, that's not coming out. That's not something I was ever exposed to before, that kind of nuance. Mm-hmm. And it increases compassion, you know, when you, and that's why I get emotional because it's like, wow, that seems really hard. That women don't understand that struggle that, because they're just pissed off that they're being viewed as an object, which is, that's understandable. But also you got to understand where that's coming from. It doesn't mean that this is a bad human being. It means there's a struggle mm-hmm. going on. So that's what I think that is a big testosterone effect. The emotional thing was the other big change. And again, this is on average and everybody's different and their experience is different. But people who, again, and the reverse things happen when you go in the opposite direction, basically, that people who, as, when living as women, were very emotional or even just regular women who might have cried, you know, once a week or even once a, a month, that tended to stop. <laughs> the tears just don't come as much. The ability to access the kind of emotional, inner emotional life diminishes. It doesn't go away, but it definitely diminishes. Anger was described as still being a salient emotion. Again, that's totally variable. People describe being the one of the emotions that didn't diminish. It didn't change necessarily, but it didn't get squashed like the weaker, more vulnerable emotions did. So, you know, women are more likely to express those vulnerable emotions. That seems to do with estrogen and low testosterone. And men are less likely to express those emotions because that's not adaptive for male animals to signal that to other males in a status competition situation. It is interesting because I think in some ways 
what I hear you saying is is just the acknowledgement that and the role that testosterone plays in the manner in which men you know, we're talking specifically heterosexual men in this case, or at least I am, engage with women for relationship, for sexual pleasure, and the and the significance that testosterone plays in that. And I think that in some ways there's a danger in trying to eradicate or eliminate the biological underpinnings of something some of this, right? To to not just say, hey, it's all social, because that that just I don't know. Look I feel gay like men. there's a rant in there you somewhere, look, but yeah. Gay men don't have as big of an issue with this, right? Right. So because they understand each other. They're having sex with other men. They get it. They're not offended by the same behaviors and attitudes that women are. So we see that hmm. stuff play out in gay sexual culture. And that's kind of a clue that this isn't about the larger culture. This is about men and males and females being different. Like it's right. not the culture, you know, it's that culture mushes the expression around, right? Very much so it's important, but it doesn't change it fundamentally. It doesn't change our natures. And that's, what's really interesting about looking at like lesbian sexual culture and gay male sexual culture. So I think that addresses the point that you were just making. Yeah, no, absolutely. And maybe just from time perspective, because I, although I wish that we had another hour or so, and you know, once you're, once you're done with the tidal wave that has, <laughs> and the onslaught that I'm sure you're experiencing right now, uh, of interviews, we might have to have you back on to dig. I would love this, that. But, I would love that. But think, you know, you talked a little bit and you touched a little bit on, on how testosterone shapes the brain, impacts the body, specifically, obviously, within, within males, can help within muscle production. Is that what we see? Like, I think you gave some examples in the book, I think, I believe, some examples in the book, or, or maybe you talked about it in one of the interviews that I watched with you, about the, the difference in like muscle mass and capacity and strength between men and women. And, and again, you know, there seems to be this sort of mission to collapse the barriers between men and women. And, you know, I think just recently in the Olympics, there was a, a man who is powerlifting, but has transitioned in his, I think, late 30s, uh, transitioned to be Email. Laurel Hubbard. And what's that? Laurel Hubbard, the New Zealand Laurel Hubbard, yeah. weightlifter. That's correct. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, there's a, an individual that was a powerlifter before yeah. as a man and has more muscle mass. So I'm just wondering if you can speak to this. I know I threw a bunch out there and there's sort of multiple questions and yeah, no, I mean, I sort think of mixed that, in. that what you're talking about is people who are activists who want to fight for the rights of various populations, right? So it could be trans women competing at sports. It could be trans people in general. It could be any, you know, lesbian people or gay men or any other sort of gender diverse population. People want, as I want, you know, really passionate about human rights and supporting reducing suffering for people, especially for people who have those kinds of differences. I think that's incredibly important. However, I disagree with these, with activists who believe in, you know, largely in the same broad causes that I do, who believe that the way to get people onto their side is to suggest and try to defend the idea that 
sex differences aren't real or aren't rooted in biology. Because I think the idea is, well, if culture creates these differences, or if we just are what we identify as or what we feel we are, then you have to accept who we say we are and what we say we are and what we want. And if I, if you tell me that you're female, you, you know, and I say, no, you're not, you're a male. Well, other people might say I'm transphobic and you should be able to compete in the female category because biology isn't real. So if you are what you say you are, and if biology isn't real, then I must be wrong. You should be able to compete Mm. in the female category. I'm not being ultra clear about this, but I think a strategy of using, trying to use science and scientific facts, not facts, scientific myths to support particular social agendas is totally counterproductive and is confusing the crap out of everybody. And these, these, some of these social agendas are important, but we'll never be able to decide. We should be deciding them and having arguments in light of the facts, not in light of myths that everybody knows are wrong. Everybody knows that males and females are different and that biology is real. And most people know that there are two sexes and that that is real. Sex is not on a spectrum and it doesn't need to be on a spectrum to support human rights and rights of people who are gender diverse. We can, you know, Mm. make, or your body plan is generally going to be to make sperm or eggs. That's how we define sex. If you're going to be making sperm or kind of have the design to make sperm, you're male. And, you know, same thing with eggs, then you're female. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that people who identify as non-binary don't exist. It just means that they're male. They are male or female. They can identify however they want. We should treat them with respect. So that's just sort of a preamble to this issue about physical sex differences. Of course, men are bigger and stronger on average than women. Like there's just no question about that. And people are trying to argue that that science isn't real or isn't strong or clear. Of course it is. I outline it in the book. There's just no question that puberty, a testosterone driven puberty causes males to have, you know, something like 40% more muscle mass in their upper body. Like I said before, the hormone takes the energy that you take in and biases it towards muscle deposition and in, in puberty, longer growth of your long bones, denser bones, denser, stronger bones, you know, greater height. Men are, I mean, it depends on the sport, but if you look at the uh, elite numbers, the least amount of advantage that men will have, and that would be in running or swimming, is 10%. The most is 50% on average at the elite level. 50% is in the speed of a baseball pitch. So there Mm. is this huge sex difference in throwing. And I played baseball and I, so I'm very, I watch women throw a lot and I I watch little girls throw and, and there really is a different there difference there that emerges fairly early, but that's incredibly robust, even in well-trained athletes. And the issue is that in trans women, if you transition after that testosterone driven puberty, you do not lose those large physical advantages. Of course, you retain the body size, you retain the bone density. Hemoglobin, which is normally about 12% higher in men, which gives men more power because they have more oxygen to their moving muscles. They have larger blood volume, larger lungs, and more hemoglobin gives them a lot more physical power. Hemoglobin does go down if you block testosterone. So trans women have 
female levels hemoglobin, but they have very high levels muscle mass, much higher than the average woman. And again, they have these advantages in body size. The strength is retained. It only goes down anywhere from about five to 10%. It varies. It can go down more. It can go down less. But trans women retain many of the advantages that they accrued through a male puberty on average. You know, it's not that like every trans woman is going to beat a natal woman in every sport. It depends. But there is a, a large physical advantage. There's no question. But to me, that doesn't decide the issue. That's just, those are the scientific facts that we should be working with. Well said, well said. Well, I really appreciate that perspective and, and the manner in which you laid it out. It's very objective in, in many ways. And I think it's hard to have these conversations. You know, it's, it, it's challenging in some sense because to say out loud, hey, there's biological sex differences between men and women is is almost in our culture and time to to subject yourself to attack, you know, to to yeah, being it is. to being it is. to you know flayed, flayed drawn and, and quartered, and so I would love to just maybe I'll, we'll close this conversation. Can I do one with, thing about the please. oral Harper yeah, situation please. that I think is important that I didn't say is she's not cheating, yeah. and I don't like the attacks mm. on her. Here I get emotional again. I really don't like mm-hmm. the personal attacks on her. She's not doing anything wrong. The regulations allow her to compete. And maybe there's a problem. You know, if you have a problem, it's with the regulations, not her. She's not cheating. She's participating fair and square according to the rules, right? You might think it's unfair, but it's not okay. She has done nothing wrong in my view. It's not okay to attack her personally. You know, have a problem with the, if you have a problem, I think really be with the regulations, not the people who are following them. Yeah, no, I I agree. I agree entirely. And I think it's it's one of the reasons why we need to be able to have this discourse, you know, like we need to be able to have these discussions because because I think in in some ways, like I remember reading a study and, and I'm not I'm at a loss as to what the actual data was, but it was something it was measuring the 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 force of a punch between a man and a woman that were the same height yes. and same weight. And that men on average had something like 45 percent uh, or Force That's right. in, in, in a punch right. simply because of the, 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 the body mass. And also and so because of the anatomy of the shoulder, and I, this is something that Dan Lieberman and my department and others have studied, and I don't understand that, but there is strength, but there's also something about the anatomy that differs that make that more powerful, I believe. Yeah. No, but you're exactly right. You're exactly right. More, more to touch on, but I, you know, I, I thank you for the conversation, and you know, I, I would welcome another, another one of these down the road. I wish you all the best. People that want to check out the book, it is called T: The Story of Testosterone, the Hormone That Dominates and Divides Us. And can I make a plea to, um, if you do get it and you like it, to review it? Yeah, on Amazon. Absolutely. Good read. Absolutely. We'll have the links for those in the in the show notes. Carol, thank you so much for joining me. We'll have the the links to, to the book and also to your profile Great. in the show notes. And for everyone that's out there, if you enjoyed this conversation, please do share it, man it forward with somebody that you know is going to enjoy the episode. And uh, don't forget to leave a rating and review on the conversation. Until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Mm-hmm.